This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And we tell you all kinds of stories from all walks of life as it relates to business and the arts, big, big names in history. But we love bringing you the small stories, too, because in our mind, they're all important. They're all relevant. And sometimes the small ones speak to us better than the big ones do. We bring you this show, by the way, from a small town in Mississippi called Oxford, home of Ole Miss. And while we talk to people of all kinds from all over this great country, sometimes we like to bring you stories from people in our neck of the woods, our little town. And so we bring you the story of Ron Lakey, the owner of Ron's Music Center, a small but thriving music store right here in Oxford. This is Pure Americana. I'm Ron Lakey. Uh, my home is Oxford, Mississippi. My hometown is Ashland, Mississippi. Ashland was uh, when I was growing up. I went to school there for an extended education. I went to high school about for uh, 14 years, so uh, I got a lot of education in Ashland. And uh, looking back, uh, we had the greatest teachers. We had a great school. Um, we we turned out some really smart people there. Um, I found out in testing in later years that uh, that they even taught me a lot. My mom and dad uh, both worked very hard um, all of my life and. Un- until I got to be 17 or 18 years old. And uh, after that, they still did work hard, but they went from uh, working for the public, working for other people, to having their own uh, grocery business for their normal standard of living. They had they worked themselves right on up. The community loved them. They were just great parents to me. I'm sure I ran them crazy. I have a brother and a sister. Because my granddad had been uh, a former sheriff of that county, uh, I had a lot of access to stuff that he had taken off of people during his four years of service. He just had an old cigar box full of things like straight razors and knuckles you know lead knuckles and aluminum knuckles and that sort of thing and uh and i've always been a you know i used to trade anything in school you know and uh we'd trade pocket knives and come up with things like cigarette lighters and all that stuff and Grandpa had just kind of turned all that stuff over to me, and uh, and I was trading it off, and I got caught trading a set of knuckles off. <laughs> One of mine was made out of uh, Babbitt lead, which it was for lead. It was uh, old lead knuckles, you know. It They weren't soft, and they were heavy. And the other one was really nice cast aluminum, and uh, looked it looked neat. 
I just traded, either sold them, traded for another knife or something like that. But uh, the janitor there told on me and the guy that was getting them. Boy, in no time, our principal was on the horn and, and he called Ron Lakey and Tommy Curtis to the office. And, and uh, it was real serious, and he looked serious. And uh, he decided he needed that that wasn't enough. He needed to take me home to show my dad and my granddad what kind of sins I was committing at school. <laughs> and, and both of them already knew about that. Mr. White took those knuckles and went through a dramatic spill with Dad and Grandpa, and he gave those to them and took me back to school. That night at supper, I thought I was really in trouble, you know. But after supper and everybody else had cleared the table, Dad reached in his pocket and he said, Here. Don't get in trouble with them things. <laughs> and he gave, you know, he gave him, gave them back to him. He said, "Just don't get in trouble with them." So okay, but you know, we didn't fight at school. We didn't fight after school. I mean, it was everybody got along, and uh, school was fun. It was, it was cool to have a car. There probably weren't, there probably were not twelve students that came to work to school in a car. I quit school because I didn't have a car, and I went out and got a factory job, earned enough to buy a cheap car. My uncle saw that I needed a car, and he had a cool little Austin Healy Sprite, and he sold it to me for $500. And That was a lot of money then, but it was a wonderful buy and a wonderful opportunity. And So for my last year in high school, I had an Austin Healy Sprite, so we were... It was neat to have a car, and, and still there were 12 cars in school. And you've been listening to Ron Lakey, and his story is, well, it's a story from right here in our little town of Oxford, and we'd love to hear your stories, too. And as you can tell, we just stay out of the way, and we ask a few open questions, but you don't hear us in these stories. We want to hear from Ron and his life. Send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and it doesn't have to be yours if it's someone in town you think's interesting. Well, we'll tell their stories for you. Again, send the stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Contact us. Our producers will be in touch. We'll send some recording gear your way with a little sheet with some basic questions. And the rest is, well, easy. Again, Ron Lakey's story here on Our American Stories, the owner of Ron's Music Center in our beautiful and small and not perfect town, but good town of Oxford, Mississippi. More after these messages.
And we return to Our American Stories and the story of Ron Lakey, the owner of Ron's Music Center right here in Oxford, Mississippi. Let's continue with Ron's story. A buddy of mine and I joined the Navy in 1966 and went to boot camp in California, San Diego. Went aboard a ship from the West Coast, the USS Galveston. It was a guided missile light cruiser. After we got on it, went to the East Coast, went to the Mediterranean uh, to be the flagship for the Admiral in the Mediterranean in 67. We went down through the Panama Canal and came out on the other side, went to Newport, Rhode Island, and then through really bad hurricane weather as we went around Cape Hatteras. We went from the U.S., Palma, Mallorca was our first stop. And then we were in several cities in that part of the world over there. Of course, we were in Naples, Italy, and uh, we were in Sicily, a couple of towns in France, and we went to Barcelona, Spain, uh, and a lot of that. But at that time, the interesting thing about that time was in 67 was uh, when the Israeli were having problems, you know. They had neighboring countries that were trying to be at war with them as they are today. In the middle of that, there was a ship, our ship, that the Israeli attacked. They uh, they hit it with torpedo boats and uh, put two or three torpedoes in it and killed 32 men on board. It was a mistake. That ship was moved to Valletta, Malta, and my friend and I were able to go to that ship and go on board that ship and and see the reality of that. And, uh, you know, when you're 20 years old, that was a big impression. And uh, the ship was pretty pretty messed up and uh, uh, we had to smell human flesh all the time that we were on that ship and it was that was pretty tough and just pretty memorable and in 1968 I got orders to go to Vietnam uh, we trained in California to teach us the reality of what we would be into then 40 miles south of Saigon there was an attachment there called the Mobile Riverine Force. And uh, I was in that Mobile Riverine Force on a boat, pretty well armored boat. Each boat had a about a seven-man crew, a boat captain, which would be an enlisted man, and then the driver, or coxswain, which was me. It was a skeleton crew, but we were pretty heavily armed. My boat carried 1,100 gallons of gasoline bladder in the well deck. And, you know, the rivers over there are just used like, you know, there's rivers that qualify as expressway and there's rivers that qualify as a dirt road, you know. And uh, we had to travel through those areas. You could real easily be in a firefight. My boat was really blessed. There would be convoys that would go through these areas, 
and get hit. And then our turn, they would forewarn us and give us all the intel. And we'd go through and come out on the other side clean. And uh, it was just like trouble till we went through. And then after we went through, trouble <laughs> for everybody else. But it was a really good experience. I wouldn't take anything for having gone over there. I know the good things that we did over there. I know the humane things that we did over there. I went to work as a purchasing agent for a mobile home factory. I went to work in Memphis in 73 and sold cars. Went to New Orleans, sold cars. Went back to Memphis, sold cars. And then in 1975, I had a very serious wreck which rendered me legally blind. I don't have any sight in my left eye. I've got, you've heard about the guy that's blind in one eye and can't see out of the other. Well, that's me. I had worked all my life and I enjoyed working. And uh, it slowed me down uh, a lot. It put me in a position that I had never been in before. You know, because of the severity of the accident, I wound up spending 45 days in the hospital and had brain surgery because the accident busted my brain. But once they relieved everything, uh, relieved the pressure, everything fell back in place and healed. It was nothing to sneeze at. It, it took me a year till I had strength like I should because I had gone from like 205 pounds, uh, but I lost down to about 140 pounds. And so had a lot of strength to rebuild and uh, to adapt to my blindness. I didn't want to sit around all my life. And uh, so there was the choice. You either figure out what you're going to do and, or you just sit around and don't do anything. And I couldn't do that. I got out of the hospital in January 76. And uh, it took me from there till 78 to figure out what was I going to do. I did go to the Center for the Blind in Jackson, Mississippi, which was, a, which was a great facility, great people. Uh, I learned more about mobility. My counselor wanted them to see me because... Uh, if they wanted to invest in me, they want, he wanted them to know what they were looking at. And so I spent about 12 weeks down there. Uh, it was a great help for me. And uh, out of frustration for finding a set of strings in Holly Springs one weekend, next time I told him, I said, I guess if I could do anything I wanted to do, I'd open a music store. And... He uh, he said, I know a little about that. And so we kind of pursued that. Got a little SBA loan. Vocational rehab uh, gave me a $5,000 grant, just a gift. So I bought that old store out. It had about a $5,000 inventory. $5,021 is a fact. And... Uh, I had five thousand, so I went. <laughs> I went into business, twenty-one dollars in the hole. So, 
maybe I've dug out by now. I've been doing this this year in May will have been 40 years. And you're listening to Ron Lakey, and if you can, well, if you can see what we're up to, it's simple. We should be listening to each other more. And right in your own community, there are people with unbelievable stories. You don't have to go to the movies, folks. Uh, Our real lives are, well, maybe more interesting than anything we can see on the screen. I mean, imagine this this guy who you probably walk in and out of a music store, you know people like this in 1968. There he is in Vietnam. And as he put it, his boat was just blessed. Others ran into trouble. His would get through unscathed, and then others would run into trouble. But he said some good came of it. And that is an American voice. You're hearing 45 days in a hospital after a car wreck, brain surgery, all kinds of troubles, healing, losing weight. And what does he want to do? Well, he doesn't want to sit around and complain. He wants to have a life. I didn't want to sit around all my life. I couldn't do that, Ron Lakey said. It took a few years to figure out what I wanted to do. $5,000 loan, $5,000 of inventory in this little music store, and he starts his own business, 21 bucks in the hole, but filled with optimism and filled with hope for his own future. Ron Lakey's story here on Our American Stories And again, we really were looking for you to to share your stories with us and send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And get in conversations with your neighbors. And whatever you do, don't talk about politics because there's so many things that unite us. And, well, that just doesn't happen to do it. And we try to avoid all that stuff here on this show. Keep things positive. Keep things, well, on an even tone. Talk to a neighbor, send a neighbor's story our way to OurAmericanNetwork.org. When we come back, we'll finish up with Ron Lakey's story from our beautiful but not perfect town here just about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee, in Oxford, Mississippi, home of Ole Miss and home of Our American Stories. Turn to the story of Ron Lakey, owner of Ron's Music Center here in Oxford, Mississippi. Let's continue with his story. If you could fill up one hand, five fingers with friends that are really sincere friends, you're very fortunate. That's friends through thick and thin. I can do that. A friend of mine called me that I had not seen in 40 years. My wife says, I think it's a telemarketer. It says on the phone, Dave Love. Took the phone. He said, is this Ronald Lakey? I said, it is. He said, 
were you in the Navy? And I said, hell, Dave, we were in there together. You knew that. You have to ask me. <laughs> and it kind of it kind of blew him away. Maybe he didn't think I would remember him or I don't know what, but he was just trying to make sure he had the right guy. But he and I sat down and talked over the phone for I don't know how long, but everything he asked, you know, everything he said, I could add something to it. And we learned about all of our guys. The next year, we had a reunion in Memphis of that of our division on that ship. But in the meantime, we had located other guys, and we had communicated. I was talking to one of those guys. I said, you know, after we did this, I said, I had so many memories. He said, yeah. And I said, and we were tight. I said, I didn't realize till I met with these guys again how tight we really were in that division. I said, we were, we were tight. He said, yeah, Ron. He said, we were 18, 19, 20 years old. We'd never been anywhere. We never, most of us never been in a big city. And here we are on a, sh we come out of 400 population town. We're on a ship with 900 men on it. And we go to San Diego and uh, and Long Beach and we're in Los Angeles. We were dumped out there and we kind of had to stick together because we were all we had. <laughs> and, and you never, you didn't think about that then, but truthfully, that was what we had. We just had each other. That was what we had. We just had each other. I enjoy coming. I enjoy coming to work every day. I'd like to work less. You know, I'd. I'd rather work about three days a week, but uh, when you're in business and you have employees and you have big bills to pay and that sort of thing, you work. I enjoy that we are mostly Christian-based in Mississippi. I was saved as a young kid, you know, when I was about 11 or 12. When I woke up in the hospital and I didn't have a clue about where I was, and I didn't know that my eyesight was bad. The doctor had a real deep voice and, and he brought me out of my sleep. He said, son, can you hear me? And I said, yes, sir. Thoughts start running through my mind. I couldn't put anything together. And he said, do you know where you are? And I said, God, I hope I'm in a hospital because <laughs> I knew how I'd been living, you know, because I was cutting a pretty wide strip about that time. And uh, he said, you're right, you're in a hospital. And I realized right then that I spiritually was not in good shape if I was not in a hospital and should I die. And when I came to that realization, after I went through the things that I went through in the hospital, but after that, I knew that God was looking out for me and that he had allowed me to live. He's made things happen for me. I've had a lot of prayers answered. I can see them. I've seen them being answered. Many years have come
come and gone Since he walked upon this ground They say lives don't last so long So why's his story hanging round And why do people stop and pray To a man that's dead and gone When I ask them they just say He's coming back to take me home Anybody here wanna live forever Say I do Anybody here wanna walk on golden streets Say I do Is anybody here sick and tired of living like you do? Anybody here want a home with love forever? Say I do. It's just, it's just a little old song that I sang at church sometimes. Immediately that it came out of a liquor store. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. And, uh, wow, listen to that. Can you do that again? <laughs> yeah. It's got a good bell, doesn't it? It's a nice. It is. It's a neat piece. A lot of folks like that. I think it's a 1944. Luis has been with me in the store since he graduated. He came highly recommended, and he's been a blessing to me. And I rely on him heavily. I'm uh, just working on this Ibanez. This one has a, uh, it's got one of these floating fluorose tremolos. So sometimes a little harder to jump. Because if you're, when you tune in, you know, you got a certain amount of tension on the neck, so it it'll, it'll, might pull it up too, too far up which raises your action, this one's actually rattling. So you kind of kind of have to adjust the tension on the springs and just play with it so you get it just right. He started here in May five years ago. So five years and almost five months in, and I like it. It's, it's, it's something that there's always something new coming out with uh, sound systems and you're always learning something, uh, which kind of helps my brain, so. We get guitars that are Nice guitars that customers have that cost a lot of money, and they get breaks or cracks and that sort of thing. I knew everything to do, but Luis can take it to the next level. One because of his pride in his work, but two his his eyesight. He can he can see he can turn out really pretty work on these nice guitars. How y'all doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. She said we've never looked at instruments or anything up close, so she well, look at. You just make yourself at home. If I can help you with anything, just holler at me. Thank you very much. And you've been listening to Ron Lakey, and great job as always to Jesse for capturing Ron's story. And my goodness, I, I can see that scene. He had just wrecked his car, and he hears a voice, "Son, can you hear me?" "Yes, sir." You know where you are. Well, I hope I'm at a hospital. And spiritually, he admitted, I wasn't in good shape. After that, I knew God was looking out for me. 
and he sang that that beautiful song and a, a humble story, a humble guy, and a good guy in a country filled with good guys and gals. Ron Lakey's story here on Our American Stories, the story of a veteran, the story of a man with a disability that, well, doesn't stop him, and the story of a man who loves serving people. When that door opens, you know he just wants to hook them up with the right instrument or whatever else they need. Again, Ron Lakey's story, owner of Ron's Music Center in our little beautiful part of this great country, Oxford, Mississippi. This is Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and now we bring you the story of Edie Hand, a friend of ours whose life, well it was so compelling, it was so interesting that we wanted to bring it to you. It's a life shaped by both a lot of love, but as you're about to hear, a whole lot of loss. Here's Edie. It was a setting in northwest Alabama just like in a novel. A sister's love for these three young boys, David, Terry, and Philip. Every afternoon after school, we would get off our school bus, run inside and get us a doodad cookie and head to the barn. I would saddle up my horse. My horse was named Trigger. And I named it Trigger because of Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. David would saddle up his horse named Spotted Cloud because he loved the Long Ranger and Tonto. And then Philip, now he saddled up his horse. He had a little Shetland pony, and he named his horse Polly because he was in love with our Avon lady. And then there was Terry. He was just too small to have his own horse, so I would throw him on the back with me. We would head to the Indian mounds, and on our property we had about 40 acres, and we would get to the top of the mounds, and it was a wonderful place to lie down, let the horses wander around, and we would start talking about our dreams. Now, David, he was going to be a race car driver. He was a great talker, and he was really funny. He would turn his hat around backwards, and he would get his pocket knife out and start cutting holes in his hat all the time, making them bigger and pull his curls through it. And he would pick up a pine cone and start saying, Oh, here comes Ruth Magoo down the road. She has one kid. No, I believe there's four, maybe five. Ruth had rather large arms, and she had one hanging out the side of the window, and she was smoking a cigar. So we just had a field day with Ruth Magoo. And then there was Philip. He was really kind of shy. He felt like he was, he just didn't know how to get involved with people, but he loved music. And my mother's brothers were singers and songwriters, and we come from the history of the, the late Elvis Presley of that family on our grandmother's side. So he says, I think I'm just gonna grow up and be a songwriter and maybe drink a little whiskey because that seems to get all the girls coming around. So we said, oh, well, whatever, you know, he was going to do. But I learned from him about 
seizing moments in life. And he was that way. He tried to seize moments if it was playing football, if he were up to bat for a baseball game. He wanted to be the best he could be, always practicing to be the best and seize every moment of something that could be great, not good. And then there was Terry. I think I learned the most about life from him. Uh, He taught us about courage. He wanted to grow up and become an architect because our dad's dad was a builder. He built buildings and homes, and Terry said he was going to grow up and be a big architect. He wanted to build all kinds of skyscrapers, buildings. And we said, wow, we barely can say the word, but you're going to do this? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was kind of cool to hear everybody share what they were going to do, and they would say, so, Edith, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to I'm going to write about other people and I'm going to be a movie star. And they went, "Oh, sure. Well, we're going to visit you in your mansion one day, okay?" And so, we teased each other and our mother, her name was Sue, but her mother had named her Ripple Sue, so we would call her Rip Dip, which she hated. So when we were on the Indian mounds and Rip Dip would get really loud, but when she was about the fifth or sixth time, Edith, David, Terry, Philip, come home and eat. Well, we, I said, boys, let's get up. It's time to go home. Rip Dip's on her last scream, you know. So we would know to mount up, get those horses back to the barn to go have dinner. But it was a wonderful way of growing up in this simpler times. But I guess I just didn't realize that what was happening in my life and what I was learning from them, it was my only time that I was going to have with them because they would die young. David died at the age of 19 in a car accident. I was a senior in college. I was devastated at that particular time in my life He was my best friend, and he was the most important man in my life. So it took me a year just to kind of get back into the groove of life. And he was the first one in our family to pass away. Ten years later, my brother Philip was killed in an automobile accident. I remember what a horrible time it was that my father called me and he said, I'm, your mother and I just can't go. Would you come and identify your brother? I just didn't realize how hard that would be. I drove to North Alabama and identified the body. It was just so hard seeing how life really was. One day you can be with someone, and the next, they're not a part of your life. You're washing their last load of clothes. Then I guess to me... The last one, the strongest one, Terry, they found he had an aneurysm in the middle of the brain. And Terry had brain surgery. And I'll never forget the courage that it took the night his neurosurgeon came out and said, I don't know if we can save him. I'm going to have to leave his head open. We're going to try to go back in one more time. Would you like to see him? I remember my mother was unconsolable. 
and my father was with her, and I went to be with him. It was like a war zone for me. I'd never seen anything quite like I saw in that room at the UAB hospital. I'd never seen that kind of pain before. His hands were strapped down, and I remember he said, you have to save me. You have to save me. And I, I could not save him. And I stayed with him as long as I could, and I prayed. I tried to comfort him. There was no way to comfort him. I went outside, and I said, you have to do something for him, Doc. You have to do something. He said, I'm going to put him in a room. You can stay with him all night. I don't know that he'll make it, but we're going to try surgery again tomorrow. I remember I didn't think he would make it either, but he went into the surgery. They lost his hearing. He, he lost his taste. Several things weren't the same. They sent him home more of a broken man. Didn't think he would live very long. But Terry, watching him fight for life, taught me so much about courage, of how he wanted to live as best he could, that my father built a ramp in his sunken den, that he'd built his home with his own two hands on his land. He talked every day or listened to country music. Then he realized when he went back to the doctor that he was going to be losing his speech. I never saw someone with that much determination. He says, what can I do, Edith? So I I fixed an A to Z sign for him. And I said, I'll point at these letters. We'll make it work. So that is the way we communicated. And he said one day, he said, I am going to lose my voice. Would you promise me that when my time comes, would you come and hold me? And I want you to tell our story one day that the Blackburn boys, that our life would be an encouragement to tell people it's important to be kind to one another, to enjoy the simpler things of life. It's not all about the money you can make, but it is what we do for one another and how we encourage one another. You know, and I am glad that God allowed me to be able, when I got the call, to come, and I held him in my arms. Now they're all buried under that big oak tree. And in the loss of these three young boys, it took me a long time, but I know this. If we all look for it, no matter what season of life we're in or what hardship we face, or heartbreak, that there is something beautiful to come out of it if we look for that. And that has been my saving grace. And you just heard Edie Hand's story. There's not a dry eye in our room. And what a story about remembrance, about family. Her brother, she buried them all. And all too young, David, 19, in a car accident. It took her a year to get over that. Ten years later, Philip, another car accident. The parents couldn't even go and ID the body. Edie had to do that. And then watching her brother struggle after an aneurysm, learning about courage, how he fought for life, taught me about life, she said about her brother Terry. And he also said, tell our story one day. And so Edie just did. Be kind to one another. 
enjoy life. It's not all about the money. And the three brothers, all those three brothers and sister who rode horses together on those 40 acres, the three boys are buried under an oak tree. What a beautiful story. What a sad story. Edie Hand's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, working hard to help perpetuate policies that help small businesses become bigger ones. And now it's time for our own Alex Cortez, who brings us today's story. Jack Marucci is the director of LSU's athletic training, but he's also a dad. My son was, uh, he's about seven, eight years old, Gino, and we used to watch a lot of baseball. I, I didn't play old videos with Pirates, Roberto Clemente, so that became his guy. And he liked Bonds as bad. He saw the black and two-tone wood bat. He goes, Dad, I like that. Man, I want to play with a wood bat. That's different, because wood bats weren't even mentioned back then. You know, now you got wood bat tournaments, and everybody likes the wood bat. So uh, I end up calling all these bat companies. They all had stock bats, none more small enough or short enough. Everybody maybe was an inch off. I needed a 27. And they only stopped at 29 or I stopped at 28. So I started looking around and there were some old bats stored here at LSU. I'm looking at them. And then we had a quarterback, Matt Mock. I started talking to Matt. Matt played for the Cubs for three years. I said, Matt, I'm, I'm thinking about making a bat for my son. I'm going to make one. I'm going to bring it in. Tell me what we need to do to, to make this thing tapered right. So I made the first one and uh, top heavy, you know, I use electrical tape to, <laughs> to do whatever. And I, I carved in, I think that one was the Geno Crusher. So the next one I start making, I got a lot better. That was the Geno Slugger. So he starts getting in Little League, he's using a wood bat. Okay, this is different, but he's, he's one of the best hitters. So everybody on the team goes, well, if he's hitting good with that bat, I want one with my kid's name on it. So we'll form a little company, Marucci Bat Company. So I bought a shed. I bought it from Canada. It's a cedar shed. I told the guy what I wanted because I thought cedar's going to last longer in this weather, the mildew, the, you know, it's not going to rot. I said, I want doors in the front and the back. He goes, why do you want that? I said, have you ever lived in Louisiana? I said, it's like living on the equator. I said, I need airflow. So I put a fan in there and that was my bat shop. And it, yeah, that was 2002. Jack went to the trouble of buying a shed when he was just making a few bats for his kid and some little league friends. Because I had to get a lathe, I had to put it somewhere, and I had a carport. So I ended up, after football, I always joke around, I said saving was a little stressful, so it was a nice stress relief to get it away. That's championship coach Nick Saban. So... I'd spend nights and the neighbor would come over and go, what are you doing? There's sawdust everywhere. I go, I'm making bats. He goes, you're making bats? He goes, give me a couple. You know, everyone, as soon as they saw it, they go, oh, 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 I want one. But he didn't charge them for it. 
I wasn't at first. So I started 25 bucks. I mean, the wood cost probably 15. And because uh, money was never a thing, I, I felt bad. I felt bad that I was going to charge somebody for it. Then I said, well, I better start charging because, you know. Because this is getting a little bit ridiculous? <laughs> well, one day, Jack was going to hang with a friend of his, Eduardo Perez, who just happened to be a major league player. And we're catching up, and I told him what I was doing. He goes, bring me one up. I said, all right. And he gave me a model, which was a common model. Everything was based off a of Louisville Slugger model, so C243. I said, all right, I think I can find one in the pile because LSU had some wood bats laying around. And I found one that I would hang it on the hanger. I had two hangers, you know, I'd straighten out the, the wire and it would hang right over the lathe. So I'm looking at it and I could, you know, feel it. I would do it by eye and feel. I would cut the bat. I think I made him two. And I'm thinking, what's he going to do with it? Maybe he's just going to put it up in his house. So. He meets me in front of the hotel and he, and he pulls out of the box and his eyes light up. And he goes, man, he goes, I'm gonna use this tonight. I said, what? I said, this thing's gonna explode, Eddie. I said, I've seen seven and eight year olds swing this. I said, you're gonna swing this, this thing? He goes, I'm gonna sneak it in because I wasn't licensed. You know, you, there's all these regulations which you find out. And uh, he goes, I tell you what, I want you to come down for batting practice. I said, okay. He gets me down there and he goes, this bat is unbelievable. Then he introduces me to, to Barry Larkin. He's playing for the Reds. He uh, says, I tell you what, we're playing in Houston. I want you to make me one. <laughs> I said, all right. Then he introduced me to Albert Pujols. One of the best players on the planet. He was very leery. And Eddie talked to him in Spanish. And that was the first bat was ever given to me to, to replicate. So. Me and my son go to Houston. And Eddie says, get there early for batting practice. He wants you to bring the bat. So I'm walking in the stadium with a bat. I said, I gave it to my son. I go, here, Jenna, you take it. He was only, I don't know, nine at the time. And I said, they won't yell at you. I said, I'm not going to bring a bat in the, in the stadium. You technically need Major League Baseball's permission to make bats for its players. So for Jack and his son to come into the stadium like every other fan coming for the game and to deliver their bat to one of the guys that was actually going to play was pretty darn rogue. We walk all the way down, they're taking batting practice. And there's people around in the stands. I don't know what to do. It's the first time you know, I've done this. And um, Larkin kind of sees us. He gives us thumbs up, and everyone behind us is going, oh, that's funny, he recognized, you know. We're in the stands with everybody else, right behind the dugout. They're all trying to get autographs, and there's people everywhere. So the bat boy comes over. We hand the bat over to him. Everyone's going, wow, how's he getting him to sign that bat? They're all going, yeah, how's he getting to sign? We're trying to get all of our, they're kind of getting mad. So the bat boy takes it right over to Larkin. Larkin starts putting on the, they call it a moda stick, the tackiness, and like pine tar it up. And everyone starts going, wait a minute. He's going to hit with that bat. <laughs> you just brought it to him. He starts taking BP. So we're watching the game. His second at bat, he was the first guy to get a hit with up the middle. And he goes, hey, that's big time. And um, that was the first hit. And to me, 
I said, that was it. I mean, I'm, I, this thing was in my backyard a couple days ago, and this guy's using a Major League Baseball. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, this is ridiculous. And when we come back, more of the story of Jack Marucci, the director of LSU's athletic training and the founder of Marucci Sports. Here on Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers series continues after these messages. back with our American stories and we return to the story of Jack Marucci, a father whose son asked him to make wooden bats that he could use in his little league and unintentionally these bats found their way into a major league game. Eduardo Perez, I can't say enough good things about him. He helped the company more than anybody. He was fantastic because he talked to all these players and he's showing them that I'm sending him more bats, and he's sneaking in the game, and he's leaving me voicemails. Man, I hit Alinea against Nomo, and I mean, it was just the excitement of, it was like contraband. You know, we're sending contraband up there. And um, he goes, you're going to get a call from Manny Ramirez. I said, okay. He goes, you know how Manny is. One of only 25 players ever to hit 500 home runs. So I get a call from Manny Ramirez. He goes, I need some bats for the playoff run. You're going to be in the playoffs. You can't use these bats. I said, well, Manny, we're, we're about to take off. We're about to play Georgia. And so we're getting on a flight, and I'm cutting them off. And I said, let me get back, and I'll cut them. So I spent three nights making bats because one of them I didn't quite like, so I redid it. I made three bats for them. I said, maybe, maybe I'll use them for batting practice or whatever. I don't know. And... Uh, so I put a model number on it. It's called a CB24. So this is 2004 now. And when I got pretty good by then. The finish, I, I was hand doing everything, putting a nice, I mean, it looked shiny. It looked like furniture. That's what Eduardo Presnell all said. It looks like furniture. Fast forward a couple years ago, I saw Orlando Cabrera on that same team. And why he's significant, I'm watching the game and Orlando Cabrera is using these bats in this playoff game. So I asked him. I never talked to Orlando about it. He used Manny's bats, I said. I said, weren't you afraid you're going to get in trouble? He goes, no. He goes, let me tell you something. I hit like 370 in that series. And those bats, that ball was coming off. So this was two years ago I'm talking to him about that 2004 playoff. And he goes, you know, I remember those bats like it was yesterday. And he goes, I always wanted to know, I didn't know what company it was, I wanted to order more, but never heard of it. And he goes, that model number, that CB. I said, well, let me tell you something. Somebody gave me a tip about five, six months after that series. They were on eBay. I found two of them. I have them in my office. I bought them back, I didn't tell them who I was. I have those two bats that you hit with in the playoffs. Cabrera hits it deep in front. So I said, you know what the CV stood for? He goes, no. I said, curse buster. I put CV to break the curse. 
the curse buster of the Yankees. The Red Sox hadn't won a World Series since 1918, 86 years ago. Allegedly cursed by their selling of Babe Ruth to the Yankees. All the way back in 1919. The Red Sox were down three games and they came back and they won the World Series. And I have those bats in my office. I told that story to the Hall of Fame. They wanted them. You know, it's just, it's one of those things. You just never know. And um, so Marucci Bats kind of started taking off. And the next big player would be Carlos Beltran. Carlos Beltran and we end up having the whole Met team. And all those people in the division saw those bats. Those guys were hitting well. And the Phillies took off with Ryan Howard, won the World Series. Our whole team was covered with our bats. The word of mouth was unstoppable, and especially about the terrifically crazy stories that major leaguers like Carlos Beltran had and shared. At the time, you know, he ordered a half dozen. I always wanted him to order small amounts because I had to cut them at the time. And, and, and then, then we got more automated, obviously, but I, I was getting tendonitis. I, I swear to God, I, I got bad. This is the first time I had epicondylitis. I told him, that I would tell him that, and I would tell the clubhouse guy, if it's a bad guy, I don't care if he's the best player, but we don't want to do bats for him. We, we were trying to turn down business because the quality of wood, we only have so much. So he orders the bats, we ship them out, and I get a phone call from him. Jack, you... You only sent me five bats, I ordered six. I said, I know. He goes, what do you mean you know? I said, do you understand that I was trying to get you the six bat, I cut like 10 to 12 bats. They weren't the quality I wanted, in silence. He goes, that is unbelievable. So he goes, You're not, you don't make like batting practice bats? No, what do you mean batting practice bats? So being naive and thinking, I'm just gonna give you the best quality. Companies that he was using says, you know, I only can get, I'm not gonna mention companies, but he could only use four to five bats out of the dozen. He felt the other ones were subpar. That's how they did it. Even for the most elite players in the most elite baseball league on the planet, the greatest of the great, it would be like giving Michael Jordan a pair of $30 sandals to play basketball in. If this is how they service the top, how do they service the the rest of us. Our bats didn't matter if you were the lowest guy to Albert Pujols. It's the same wood. It was always the same. Nothing. There was no variance. And he loved it. So I always told people, you know, we were always chasing the quality. and You're not going to chase the dollar. You're not going to chase that money. Chase the quality. The stuff will come. A lot of people flippantly say that they're focused on quality. It's one of those inescapable buzzwords like customer-focused, but that is rarely true. At Marucci, they refuse to put their seal on a bat unless it is absolutely perfect. We're dependent on an organic piece of material that it's not like a metal bat where you can fabricate it. You're not fabricating a piece of wood. You're dependent on Mother Nature, so you can get in a piece of wood and it may have ingrown bark, it could have defoliation on it, it may not dry the right way, it could bend up bowing. So now you got to warp. So there's so many factors. And that's why the company decided to buy a wood mill on an Amish farm in Pennsylvania. 
so that they could have a stable supply source and one that they can control. At least try to. And still... If you look at the wood that comes in, probably only 13 to 14% is used for Major League Bats because of how selective we are. Their 86% rejection rate is absolutely nuts, and it's actually even worse, or Jack would say even better, given the commitment behind it. Once the approved wood gets into their process, they're able to make about 1,200 bats a day, and a big chunk of them won't make it through their quality control checks, about 300 of them. A fourth of their employees' daily work gone and wiped away. This translates into an actual rejection rate of 89.5%. And for some context on this, for how it is for most businesses, Johnsonville Sausage founder Ralph Steyer told us that he was concerned about their rejection rate of 5%. And he ended up getting it down to 0.5%. One bat maybe touched 22 to 24 sets of hands before it's out on the major league field. So it's, it's, we're just, we're obsessive on quality. Then we start developing a, an idea. Players want to become part of what we're doing. Other companies are paying players to use their stuff. We've never paid a player to use a bat. Never thought, of, why would I do that? They, they want them. Why would I? Here's a novel idea. They want to buy into us. So. We have 18, probably 18 Major League Baseball players are investing in the company. So there's a lot more people that have probably benefited than I am, even financially, which is, which is good. Jack could do that, given that he doesn't care about the money. His concern is a greater one. The clubhouse guys loved us because we weren't in there all the time, and we weren't trying to sell to everybody, you know. I've told players if they act up early on that we don't want to do bats for you. If you're embarrassed, you wouldn't believe some of the conversations. We had a player throw a bat in the minor leagues, and I told him, if we, if we do this again, we're done. We're not making your bats anymore. You know, and it, some of these guys were never told stuff like that, but I, I believe that was the right thing to do. When you're not desperate like that, it, it makes you different. But then when you become a little bit driven by it, it, it changes things. So. We became the number one bat company probably about two and a half years ago. We passed the Louisville Slurp, and uh, by a pretty large margin now. But, um, you know, you're in sport, and it is a game of inches. And if those companies made that bat one inch longer, I wouldn't have probably made bats because they would have made a bat for my son, and that would have been it. <laughs> one inch. One inch. And what a story, folks. Chase the quality, the rest will come. And my goodness, what an idea, letting the Major League Baseball players themselves own a piece of the company rather than chasing them for a darned endorsement. When we come back, more of the life story of Jack Marucci, director of LSU's athletic training, founder of Marucci Sports, here on Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers segment and series continues.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the story of Jack Marucci, who went from making wooden bats for his kid to becoming the number one selling bat maker in Major League Baseball in the matter of only a decade. As a reminder, Jack Marucci is a world-class athletic trainer. He wasn't a world-class woodmaker or really a woodmaker at all. He took an eighth grade woodshop class and that was about it. He had to buy secondhand equipment, a lathe, for $150 just to hope to fulfill his son's simple dream of playing with a wood bat. So how is it even possible that this non-woodmaker, non-baseball expert made a bat that was so good that it became the highest selling in Major League Baseball? Was it pure luck? Did he just accidentally make something that was the best? From the outside looking in, it may seem like it. How did how'd you learn wood? How did we do it? I said, well, you go to the University of Google and you can learn a lot. Then you can go to, then you get a master's at the University of YouTube. And you know, there's so many resources if you use them and, and you have connections to call people. You talk to the physicist up in Michigan who's done a lot of testing and you learn, you pick their brain. You, you learn about wood with the people who make the drumsticks with all the great rock bands and you know, there is, a, there, is, there is something to the type of wood and the way you dry it, and there is formulas, but you can learn that. You can if you, if you want to. The resources are there. If, if you have the passion for it, you can. If you have the willingness to. Jack was around 37 years old then, and a lot of folks at that age aren't willing to learn new things. Heck, I'm 29, and this city boy turned country boy finds it absolutely daunting to learn new things like taking care of a riding lawnmower. I, I think it's part of our nature. That's why our parents and grandparents came over to this country. They were willing to take chances. I think it's built inside of us. I think we're a little bit more adventurous maybe because of that. My mom was 11 when she came from Spain and my grandfather's from Italy. So we're half Spanish, half Italian, but, and that was the makeup of most of the people we grew up with. Everybody was pretty ethnic. And, you know, we went to the Italian church and St. Teresa's. We thought that's how it was everywhere. Notice how Jack said the Italian church, not the Catholic church. In immigrant hotbeds like Jack's Uniontown, Pennsylvania, or my ancestor's Chicago neighborhood of Bridgeport, each ethnicity had its own Catholic church. No, it wasn't the cat. It was the Italian church. We went to there was the Polish church, and you had the uh, Russian Orthodox church. That's how it was. So I mean, you think uh, you know, that's all you know as a kid. But um, her dad came over to be a coal miner, and we went back to see her where she grew up. And it was like San Diego. I'm going. Why would your dad leave this place? They lived right by the ocean. But I guess times were so bad. They had a civil war. The economy was bad, and the war was breaking out. This was like in the early 40s, so. But her dad comes over here right before the war, War II, and he's trying to save money, bring the family up, but he can't get back and forth. So my mom didn't see him until 11 years, until he could save up the money. So she was 11 the first time she saw her dad. <laughs> her sister and her brother came over, didn't know English. They put them in second grade to learn the English and they had to work their way up. 
Then my dad's side, my grandfather came over when he was 15. Then he got deported because you had to be 16. Or you can see it on the Ellis Island report. He got to Ellis Island and somehow he got through all that. And they said, well, you're only 15. And they deported him back. So he had to go all the way back. Then he came back when he was 16. And these aren't a couple hour flights that we're talking about here. We're talking about boat rides across the ocean and long ones. It's gonna be probably a month. So he started a restaurant. So we came up kind of in the restaurant business. So my dad ended up being the butcher. My dad did the bartending. We did the managing. Him and his two sisters took over after my grandfather passed and was built from nothing. It was just a little deli. And they built it into a place where banquets could seat up to six, seven hundred people. I mean, it's, it just kept growing. And that's when I first probably came across the first professional athletes because we used to check coats, me and my brother. We're like 10 years old and you're checking coats, man. And they're giving you these big coats and we'd stay up late and we're so tired. I mean, it's like almost one o'clock and we never stay up this late. Imagine making your 10 year old today stay up until 1 a.m. to work for you. You wouldn't be able to. The labor laws would call it child abuse. That was child abuse. We were so tired. We'd wrestle in there. We'd have coats all over the place. You know, we'd do whatever. And uh, we'd start being silly and, we'd, you know, we'd give them the coat and we'd, like, we're coughing, go, how about a buck? You know, we'd do something like that. How about a buck? You know, and so, so I mean, we would just do these, all these goofy things, but you could make, if it's a hundred coats, you're making a hundred bucks. You know, you split it. That's 50 bucks each. Not bad for a 10-year-old. Joe Paterno would come in or, you know, for a banquet, he was speaking. So we were a sports-oriented family. Again, from the area where we grew up, a lot of people know the history of even just quarterbacks from there. Within a 50-mile radius of the city of Pittsburgh, they've had 36 NFL quarterbacks, including Dan Marino, Joe Montana, Joe Namath, Jim Kelly, and Johnny Unitas, leading it to be called the cradle of quarterbacks. And by the way, in basketball, Pistol Pete Maravich is from there too. The name Maravich is a very ethnic Croatian. But, you know, I think then, and, and if you look at it from that culture, that's why you had a lot of Italian boxers. That's why you had a lot of Irish. You know, they were immigrants that came over here just trying to do anything to get out of poverty. So they learned to fight, they learned to start a restaurant. So they were very innovative and I think that we were very fortunate to grow up in that type of culture. But when you're when you're growing up you don't you have no idea. You're just living and breathing it. Not knowing that life's not like that for a lot of folks. And that this immigrant mentality is a gift. So we're going to Bamante's in New York. It's the oldest, I think it's, it's in the top 10 oldest restaurants in the New York metropolitan area. It's in Brooklyn. This restaurant was the one where they did the TV show, The Sopranos. They filmed a lot in there. So I get in there, it's not a big place. And I'm sitting there and all these people start coming in. Bobby Valentine comes in. Here comes Tommy Lasorda comes walking in. And then Joe Piscopo comes walking in. 
And Leonardo DiCaprio comes along. I'm sitting next to the guy. And we're, we're laughing. We're going to wake up tomorrow. And go, this, this really happened. These people just start marching. All these Italians. Jack yeah, then here's, here I am. Yeah, here I am from Uniontown, Pennsylvania. And my goodness, if you didn't like Jack Marucci's story in those first two segments, my goodness, the flavor just keeps getting added into the mix. Of course, he's down in Cajun country now, but he was a, a Pittsburgh boy, which means football, football, football. But it wasn't just that, folks. That early work experience as a young man, we hear this again and again in our successful entrepreneur stories. Work young. Child labor laws would have probably prevented Jack from getting some of the seminal experiences he needed that formed his character, formed his nature. And he was having fun. Yeah, he was up late, but 50 bucks he split. 50 bucks for a night as a 10-year-old. That'll get you working. And, of course, that immigrant story. We love the immigrant story here in this country. And remember, he didn't call it a Catholic church. He called it an Italian church. And I know because I went to an Italian church, the Sicilian part of my family. It was not a Catholic church. And that's why I was smiling. And you are, too. Jack Marucci's story. What a classic American story. YouTube in his way. Self-taught all the way into becoming America's premier bat maker. His story here on Our American Stories continues after these messages. stories and now the final portion of this remarkable American dreamer's stories on Jack Marucci who went from making wooden bats for his kid to becoming the number one selling bat in Major League Baseball. Let's pick up where we last left off. On Marucci Sports' website there's video testimonies from MLB players including Albert Pujols and Andrew McCutcheon And even though their videos are supposed to be about baseball, how they honor the game and their Marucci bats, both of those guys started talking about their faith. Here's Pujols on hitting his 600th home run. First of all, I need to thank God for giving me the the opportunity and the ability to be able to do that. That's who I give all the glory and all the credit. And here's McCutcheon with just a ton of kids at the annual baseball camp he hosts in his hometown of Fort Meade, Florida. I'd like to thank all y'all for coming, all right? Anybody heard the Lord's Prayer? All right? Before every game, when I go out, I like to go out in the middle of center field, and I like to say a little prayer. Repeat after me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Powerful stuff and stuff that Jack's company keeps in the videos. Most of the media takes these uncool parts out, taking out of their stories what they say is the central force in their lives. It's important to who they are. It's important that people should hear that. That it don't be ashamed of it. I think people are coming more ashamed of it. I mean, we'll talk about it. So 
that's one of those things I think it's gotten slanted a little bit. So I think faith is, it's funny how when hard times come, people, they want faith, they want religion, you know. You should be, when good things, how about thanking it, you know, that, that side of it. Let's not, it's not always one side of it, but it's funny how people evolve back to that. Why is that? Well, there's something pulling you there. Faith is part of hope. And once you take hope away from people, it's not a good thing. You always, you know, when I talk to athletes, if they're injured, you always have that hope. Faith is the same lines. So faith gives people that hope, gives them comfort. We think that's very important to have that message because that's who they are. It's the right thing to do. And it's important to these people's lives. Pujols is that, that, that is, he's strong with that. that that's, that's real now. It's not just saying it. He lives it. Coach Bowden lived it. Coach Bowden didn't cuss. He lived that life. And Jack doesn't cuss either. Even though this Italian Catholic comes from the perfect background for it. Believe it or not, I don't. I never smoked. I don't drink. And we grew up in a, you know, restaurant, and I, and I have nothing against it, but I don't know. I just, I just never, never have it. I'm in an environment where cussing is very uh, <laughs> prominent. We had a coach one time. He came over. I'm not going to mention his name. I talked to him. He came in and goes, you know, I speak two different languages. He goes, I speak English and profanity. <laughs> and he did. I think profanity might have been his. Uh, dominant uh, language, but, um, uh, and I have not, again, there's, there's not, we're in an environment of it, but, uh, you know, uh, I don't think you have to do that. If you go to church on, on a weekend, you should, it, it's a time to be thankful. <laughs> it's the only time where you really can sit down and, you know, we're so busy and we try to say our prayers at night, but a lot of times, you know, we'll fall asleep or we're, we're exhausted or we, we do, we don't. But that's a time where you're captured and just be thankful for what you have instead of going over all the negative stuff. But that's self-talk. That's a whole other topic and what we try to do and, you know, how the mind can overpower you. So, but that's where faith and religion can give you a little more clarity if, you, if you're invested in it. I've seen people change because of that. We have a player and his name's Cecil Collins. Cecil Collins was probably the best running back we ever had here. He only played three games and three and a half games. That's it. And yet Jack is insisting that he's still the best they've ever had. You can look at the YouTube stuff. He had a little, he, he struggled as a young player. He got in trouble. Unjustified, he was in prison for about 18 years. 18 years, he just got out a couple years ago. I reconnected, been trying to help him with some things, invite him to the bowl game. If, if, if religion didn't change his life, then it hadn't changed anybody's. He doesn't cuss anymore. He, doesn't. he is a true testament. And he almost died in prison. He was eating, um, it was like chicken and rice. There was a bone that cut him. He was internally bleeding. And they weren't going to take him to the dog. He finally got there. The surgeon saved his life. He was 150 pounds. And this guy, his personality, he is a unbelievable, he's a gem. He's got a family, he's, he's, he's become an electrician. Just a productive, this guy has a future. In just the way that Jack says, this guy has a future. You can hear how proud Jack is of him. And yet that's not how a lot of mainstream culture would look at him. He's the best running back that LSU's ever had could have made tens of millions of dollars in the NFL. 
but now he's an electrician and you're saying that he's a gem and has a future? It says a lot about who Jack Marucci is and integrity that other people can't help but to respond to. When we were together, Jack pulled out his phone and played for me a voicemail that someone left for him the other day. He didn't do it to brag. He was just so tickled by it. I'm so happy for you. and I don't know you. I'm proud of you. I love what you do and how you do it. Love the story of your company. I wanted to let you know that John Brubrick has shared it with my entire Major League staff here in spring training. We're listening to Clint Hurdle, the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And there were only a few of us that knew the story going in, so for about 50 guys, it was the first time they heard. Basically, a dad made a bat for a boy that he loved, and it's turned into what it's turned into. Um, because it was just about unconditional love, and uh, there was no motive other than to be a dad, your servant, and then the way you've gone about it since then, so professionally. So, if I can ever be of service to you, please let let me know. Um, I will send you my contact information. Um, I send out a daily email of encouragement. Um, then I might send you the website just in case you'd like to join. Uh, but John Brubaker is a very good friend of mine. He speaks volumes about your integrity and character. So, you're all good by me. Let me know if I can be of service. Maybe we connect sometime during the season. Uh, love to run into you. Uh, buy you dinner or something. Okay? Over and out, buddy. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That phone call also says a lot about Clint Hurdle. To be operating at the highest level of your profession as he is, and to make the time to call someone, someone you don't know, just to tell them how impressed you are by them and how they've lived their life. Think we could do that more in our lives? I know that I can. For Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And what a story. I think that may be my favorite right up there with Ralph Lauren and Bernie Marcus. And Our American Dreamer Stories can be found at ouramericannetwork.org. We've done a bunch. And my goodness, great work as always to Alex Cortez. Our great crew here goes all over this country to find these great stories And the redeeming virtue and feature of our stories is that we love to shine the light on the good. And unlike most media enterprises who shine light on the ugly and the train wreck, we love light and we love real hope and darkness. Well, turn to another channel if that's what you're looking for. And our American Dreamer series is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And Job Creators Network works hard to fight for public policies that help small businesses become bigger ones. And by the way, the founder of Job Creators Network is a hero of mine, Bernie Marcus, who at 49 years old found himself out of work. He and two partners, Ken Langone and Arthur Blank, started a little company you all know now, and it's called Home Depot. And those three men built this great enterprise and then have spent their later years giving a lot of their money away and showing the virtue and generosity uh, that capitalism can bequeath. And I want to add also that you can get all of Our American Dreamer series stories over at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And so I want to leave this story playing the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates 
message, his message that was on Jack Marucci's phone because it's worth hearing again. And don't we all wish that a message like this would be left on our phone by a complete stranger and that our life's work, what we do in our lives, our integrity and our character can leave this imprint and can make this kind of difference. Integrity and character, we talk about it a lot here on this show. Let's leave with Clint Hurdle. This is Our American Stories. Basically, Dad made a bat for a boy that he loved, and it's turned into what it's turned into um, because it was just about unconditional love, and uh, there was no motive other than to be a dad, your servant, and then the way you've gone about it since then so professionally. So if I can ever be of service to you, please let, let me know. Um, I will send you my contact information. Um, I send out a daily email of encouragement. Um, then I might send you the website just in case you'd like to join. Uh, but John Brubaker is a very good friend of mine. He speaks volumes about your integrity and character. So you're all good by me. Let me know if I can be a service. Maybe we connect sometime during the season. Uh, love to run into you. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. 